Welcome to the Jazz Notes Podcast. I'm Ben Anderson. I'm Chandler Holtz. We are recording this on February 20th. It's the post-All-Star break edition. There are two games to look uh, back at for the Utah Jazz since they last played, and uh, they will have a couple of games coming up before the next time we record as well. So uh, second half of the season kicking off, but uh, let's look at, uh, Chandler, what happened over the last two games for the Utah Jazz. Yeah, last two games. First one was a, a pretty rough loss to the L.A. Lakers, 138-122. to And then just before the All-Star weekend break, there was a, another loss to the Warriors. It was just a three-point loss, 140-137. to The Lakers game was bad. It was a lot of really bad defense. Lakers shot 57% from the floor, 45% from three. Utah only trailed by one at the half, but then they got outscored by 15 points in the third quarter. And Utah is 4-26 and 26 this year when trailing after three. Yeah, and I mean, you're giving up crazy scores. 138 points in regulation, 140 points in regulations. The Jazz have been dreadful defensively. I think they were, what, down 70-69, to 69, I think, at halftime in that game. Like, there was no defense being played. It was funny to see people talk about the all-star scores. I was like, yeah, I've been watching the Jazz. I've, that's not that <laughs> unfamiliar to me. I've, I've seen some of these huge numbers being put up on a nightly basis. So, uh, yeah, the Lakers game was dreadful. That was a game they didn't, you know, they don't need any wins. They're, you know, there's no must win games here. But if the Jazz wanted to stay competitive in the uh, play in tournament seating, you would have liked to see some better showing. Certainly they did not show it last Monday against the Warriors. Wednesday's game was atrocious against the uh, Lakers playing without LeBron. And then they played much better Thursday night, but even then they had to come back from a big, big deficit. They were down early, and the Warriors hit the, hit the wall in the fourth quarter and basically couldn't score. And the Jazz still lost. So fun game. Uh, Thursday night, Keontae George, nine threes. He was certainly the talk of it. Lowry had been terrible. He started the game one of 15 uh, and then bounced back and had a game in itself. I think he had 15 points and eight rebounds in the fourth quarter. By j- just, just in the fourth alone, he was pretty awesome there. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be taking from the rest of the season other than I'm looking for those types of moments from Keontae George. And even then, I've seen enough from Keontae this year. He's good. He's going to be really good. He's going to be one of the guys from this draft class that hits. He's going to be a longtime NBA player, health provided, and he's going to be the one of the faces of the Utah Jazz going forward if he continues to progress. And again, he's only 20 years old. He's really good, and he's going to be really good, and the Jazz got a win there, and that's what you needed. What do you take from the, the Jazz's rotation? Looking at this Warriors game, all of the starters had at least an even or a positive plus-minus, and then everyone off the bench had a negative plus-minus. Yeah, and some of that's just you know game to game because I think a couple of games before that, it was the exact opposite. Like sometimes... The second unit's just terrible. And right now, you're, you know, you're playing a lot of Taylor Hendricks in that second unit, and he just doesn't know how to play yet, and which is fine. This, that's part of this process as well. But Lowry Markinen's good, and when Keontae George is hitting nine threes in a game, he's going to be really good too, and you're going to be fine. You're going you're to have positive plus-minus there. John Collins seems to always be up and down with his plus-minus. He'll go long stretches where he's a positive, and then long stretches where he's a negative. Uh, Colin Sexton... Doesn't matter all that much. And I'm not saying he doesn't matter. I'm just saying his plus minus doesn't matter all that much. I am more focusing on like, are the Jazz losing by 17 every time Taylor Hendricks is on the floor? Because if they are, that's probably the reason why A, they're losing games, and B, why everybody in the second unit has a negative plus minus. You were right in saying that Keontae George was the topic of discussion for Jazz fans uh, going into the All-Star weekend. And with 26 games left, do you do you expect maybe him to have a, a, a second half jump? I think what's always amazing to me about Keontae George is that as soon as you're ready to say, ooh, he doesn't have it anymore, like he has, he has exhausted every bit of energy he has, he bounces back and has the best game of his career, which is exactly what he did Thursday. Second night of a back-to-back, he's chasing Steph all over. And by the way, I thought he did a hell of a job on Steph Curry. I thought he did a really, really nice job in that game. And some of that was Steph was tired as well. But Steph was 4 of 14. 
16 points. He did have 10 assists, but that might be the worst I've ever seen Steph play in person. And it wasn't unrelated to how Keontae George was fighting over screens, getting on top of him, making sure he wasn't getting easy looks, which is what he did all day on Monday. Like, I think Keontae really learned something on Monday about how to play this guy and how to bounce back. Now, by the fourth quarter, if you just look at the box score of the fourth quarter alone, while Lowry was great, Keontae George was awful. He had nothing left to offer. Keontae George in that game had, in the fourth quarter, 0 of 5 shooting, five fouls in the fourth quarter. Committed, he fouled out of the game because he committed five fouls in the fourth quarter. That's unbelievable. He only scored one point, one of two at the free throw line, missed both of his threes. He did have three assists, but he was wrecked by the time they got to those uh, final 12 minutes of the game. He played 11 minutes and 58 seconds of the fourth quarter because he fouled out with two seconds left to go. So uh, he learned a lot, and he was still out of gas because chasing Steph around has to be the least fun thing of any defender in the NBA. He just runs off screens all game long, and he's the Energizer Battery. He just or the Energizer Bunny. He just he doesn't run out of energy ever. And I know he wasn't great in this game, but very difficult uh, situation there for Keontae, and he still had a lot to offer offensively, and almost almost won the Jazz the game by himself. Through 50 games this year, Keontae's averaging 11.7 points, 4.3 assists on about 40 percent from the field and 35 percent from three. I would say it's. I say we could expect him to jump up to maybe 15 and five, not for the season averages, but specifically over the next 26 games. And considering. There are there's no such thing as efficient rookies in the NBA, especially guards. Like they just do not score efficiently. The game is so hard for him to be at 39 percent and 35 percent. He's a he's 39.1 from the floor, 34.8 from three. And yes, some of that is helped by the fact that he just hit nine threes in this game. But like that that's how it works. Sometimes you have hot shooting nights, and those are going to boost your three point shooting percentage. That's not that bad. Like if he could get up to 40 and 35 for the season that looks a lot better than the 36 and 29 he was shooting early in the year he has he has started to pick it up quite a bit over the last uh last few months and going to the bench i think helped him getting some easier shots not having to run the show maybe his efficiency gets hurt now because he's having to do so much but he's playing a lot better he's playing pretty good basketball and let's see let's just go over his last nine games here i'm just cherry picking it uh He's averaging 16 points, four assists, shooting 48% from the floor and 43% from three. Like That's going into the All-Star break when he should be beat on 28 minutes a game. Uh, if he does that for the second half of the season, holy cow, you are thrilled. And he might put himself back into that all-rookie first-team conversation. He might be able to jump with Brandon Pajemski in, in that combo. Let's look at some Jazz stats since the trade deadline. The Jazz are 30th in defensive rating, 27th in turnovers, 29th in points off turnovers, 24th in opponent points in the paint, and 30th in opponent points per game. Here's the craziest one, though. Opponents are shooting 54.2% against the Jazz since the trade deadline. Yeah, so more than half your shots are going in. Yep. Like, you expect shots to go in more than they're not, and I bet you their three-pointers are like... 42%, 43%. 42%, 43%. So, yeah, you're just they're, – they're horrible defensively right now. And it's because they have bad defenders on the team. Like, Yeah, and I know that you weren't giving up a lot with Kelly Olenek defensively, but he ate up 25 minutes a night, and so did Simone Fontecchio. So now you're stretching bad defenders even further, and that gets really hard to do. Also, they lost size. I mean, I think that's yeah. one of the underrated things is that Kelly is big. Simone is pretty big for his position. Now you're playing a little bit smaller without those guys on the floor. And if the Jazz just wanted to remedy it, you could put – Omer Yurtsevin out there, and honestly, your defense would improve just because he's seven feet tall. And if you played him 15 minutes, your offense might get worse, but your defense would get better. Uh, but I don't think that's what the Jazz are interested in. They're not going to take shortcuts just to relieve or relieve some of that, uh, that short-term pain. But yeah, since the trade deadline, the Jazz are 0-4. They have yet to win a game. But the good news is there's two very winnable games coming up 
on Thursday, the Jazz are going to be hosting uh, the Charlotte Hornets and then hosting the San Antonio Spurs on Sunday. Charlotte's at the bottom of the East and the Spurs are at the bottom of the West. Yeah, you would hope those would be wins. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a Jazz fan and you're interested in winning games, those need to be victories because the schedule over the second half of the season gets incredibly difficult, not just because the Jazz schedule is difficult, but because everybody in the NBA who wants to win starts really trying every night. This is the, this is the run. This is the last 25 games of the season where, no, Atlanta is not a good team this year, but Trey Young and DeJounte Murray are going to be buckled in to win this game on the road. Orlando is trying to make the playoffs. They're buckled in. Miami is trying to make the playoffs. They just went and signed DeLon Wright. They're trying to win. Wizards want to lose. Bulls want to win. Nuggets want to win. Celtics want to win. Again, the Hawks, the Timberwolves, the Thunder, the Mavericks, the Rockets. I mean, you run into like eight straight games there where I think all of these teams maybe with the exception of the Rockets, are all really trying to win. They just don't have that many gimmies the rest of the year. So these next two, if the Jazz win, uh, enjoy it, Jazz fans, because there might not be a lot more. I was about to say, it may not be the goal for the Jazz to make the postseason, but it's still very possible, so it's only right that we look ahead at these games. March is going to be a rough month, right? You have Denver, Boston, Atlanta, Minnesota twice, OKC, and Dallas for a seven-game stretch. That's six out of seven or seven out of seven teams that are either at the top of their conference or competing to be in the postseason. Uh, before we take a break, let's take a quick look at the standings right now just to kind of reset where the Jazz are since we're coming out of the All-Star break. It's been a few minutes uh, since they played some games. So they're 26 and 30. They're two and a half games back of the 10th seeded Golden State Warriors. They're four games back of the Los Angeles Lakers now. Like we were talking about okay, you're no longer even playing for the 8th seed or the 7th seed. You're probably just playing for the ninth, 10th, or 11th. I think you can even cross the ninth off the list. Yeah. You're not, I don't think, you're not going to catch the Lakers. You're not going to make up four games on the Lakers over the last 25 games of the season. It's just too difficult to do. Uh, so you're really just playing maybe for the 10th seed or potentially the 12th seed, which is the Rockets who are behind you. The Rockets are just a game back of the Jazz. We'll be curious to see uh, what they do and how they want to treat the, the final 25 games if they just want to position for the draft as well. Yeah. And if you, uh, the, the tough thing about rising up to that 10th seed is you're now 0-2 uh, against the Golden State Warriors this season. You have one more game against them on April 7th uh, in Golden State, and then another road game there on the last game of the season on the 14th. So you would have to win both of those just to have a chance at a tiebreaker somewhere else. Yes. Which is very unlikely because you've lost back-to-back games here in Salt Lake City within a week of each other. Uh, overall NBA standings, because it impacts where the Jazz are in the draft. Right now, the Jazz would be drafting, I'm looking at it, it looks like 11th. You've got the Pistons 1, Wizards 2, uh, Spurs 3, Hornets 4, Blazers 5, Raptors 6, Grizzlies 7, Nets 8, Hawks 9, Rockets 10, Jazz would be 11th. So the Jazz are a game out of the 10th pick, which would allow them to keep their pick and a game and a half out of the ninth pick uh, behind the Hawks, which would really probably give them a little bit of insurance in case one of those teams randomly from uh, 11 to 14 were to jump up in the lottery and uh, move them out. So much better position to get that lottery pick, that top 10 pick, than they are to make the playoffs at this point in the season, which is kind of what we expected after the trade deadline. All right, Chandler, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will uh, talk about the All-Star Weekend a little bit. I don't want to harp on it too much. And then we will get to the mailbag, of which we have lots of questions. Follow us on Twitter, at Ben's Hoops, at Chandler Holt KSL. Of course, read us at kslsports.com. More Jazz Notes coming up next. Welcome back to the Jazz Notes podcast, Ben Anderson, Chandler Holt. All right, Chandler, we watched what was, I don't want to say it was a debacle of an all-star weekend, but 
if you were to take the general temperature of fans, and let's just say sports fans, mostly negative opinions of the All-Star Weekend. Definitely. I thought that it was really, really bad. Um, the skills challenge, I definitely see the appeal there. It can be fun, but um, it's getting a little bit dry, especially because the past three years they've done the same thing. And also the it was Team, team Cavs who won it the first year, Team Jazz won it last year, and Team Pacers take it this year. And then the All-Star game, it was like... In past years, when they had the target scores, it was a little bit more competitive. Uh, I think I think back specifically to Chicago when they had the 24 uh, point um, goal. That was it was a super competitive game. The fourth quarter there was great. Yep. Um, but it was just it was just really really bad this year. In my yeah, opinion. I know they tried to undo some of that and just try to go back to regular basketball. And Adam Silver thought that would be better. It actually made it worse. I think the NBA All Star Game is too late in the season because guys are exhausted. I promise you. I'm in the locker room. You were in the locker room. You see how tired these guys are. Like they can. You can barely get up and down the floor in a regular season game. The idea that they're going to do it at an all-star game is crazy. And then they even put the game too late in the all-star break because let's say you play Sunday night. You have to be back at practice for your team on Wednesday at the latest mm-hmm. because the game start up on Thursday. So you're back Wednesday, right? So if you play Sunday, you fly out Sunday night from Indiana, you get to Cabo or wherever you're going Monday at 1 a.m., you sleep, maybe you don't sleep, but whatever, you relax. You wake up Monday, you've got Monday night, and then Tuesday night you're like, well, i got to be ready to get back to practice again on a plane. Like The All-Star break actually probably isn't long enough. I almost wonder if we need to jam the All-Star break into Friday and Saturday, take Sunday off, and just say, whatever, it's just Sunday, nobody's doing anything in the NBA, and everyone gets to split a little bit further, and then Saturday is kind of an all-day event where you do the dunk contest and the all-star game, and then maybe Friday night you do the Rising Stars Challenge, you do the three-point contest and the skills challenge that night. Like, yeah. Maybe it's just too spread out because I do think it's oversaturated. By the time you've watched the bad Rising Stars Challenge Friday, if Saturday doesn't deliver and it wasn't particularly great this year, by the time you get to Sunday, you're just like, who cares? And yep. the players have been there a long time. They've been doing media appearances. I think there's too much. I think it's too long. Uh, speaking of too much, there have been dunk contests in the NBA since 1976. We're coming up on nearly 50 years of dunk contests I think it I think it might be time that the dunk contest has died. You know, I think that there's every single almost every single dunk that is humanly possible has been done, if not in the NBA dunk contest by all these professional dunkers that we see online. Um, and then you see ideas floating around like a one v one tournament. I think that there are things that could replace the dunk contest. And I know that it's it's sad, right? When you think of All Star Weekend, you you think of the dunk contest to some degree. But I just I just think that it hasn't been very good in a long time, and we're at the point where like one every four or five years we have a good dunk contest. Yeah, and and that's probably how it's always been. In all honesty, like every five years you have a memorable contest, whether it's Isaiah Ryder or Dominique and Jordan. Like there are less good ones than than more. Though there are fewer good dunk contests than there have been great dunk contests, and we remember the select few. Now, when it does deliver. It's one of the best products you can have for the NBA, and it gets people excited. Aaron Gordon versus Zach Levine, twice, both awesome. Absolutely incredible and great, but you're always kind of waiting for that. You're always waiting for Vince Carter, Steve Francis, Tracy McGrady. Like, you're waiting for those years to come back, and it's pretty rare. It's pretty it's pretty unusual, and then they build it up like every year is going to be that way, and I think that's the hard part. The expectation of All-Star Weekend surpasses what it could ever deliver, and that's a big flaw of it. So I wish it was better. It's not. I don't know how you fix it. I proposed maybe you play, and the, the way the Rising Stars Challenge does, maybe you have four different actual NBA All-Star teams. You expand the rosters to 16 in the West, 16 in the East, and then you split those up by eight. And if you wanted to go back to the draft, you could. But on Friday night, you have 
one of the Western teams play one of the Eastern teams. Or maybe you do the Western versus the Western, and then on Saturday night, the Eastern versus the Eastern, and then the winner of those games plays each other on Saturday night. You do a set score, you do it to 100 points, and you play it that way, and you just say, okay, these are two eight-player teams going at it, and the the winning eight-player team each gets a million bucks. Like, maybe you build it up that way, and that by the time Sunday they're playing each other, everyone's got some chemistry because they played already one game before. Maybe they got to practice a little bit Saturday. There's a little bit more on the line because they want to win. Maybe you turn it tournament style, but like again, you're just you're adding more, and our players going to want to do more True. at this point in the season. That gets really difficult, but maybe that's how you fix it. And then there's eight players who get an extra million dollars each at the end of the year, and they play a little bit harder as a result. But yeah, like you said, expectations, that's the big thing for it because the NBA All-Star Weekend is supposed to be the best, right? The gold standard in big four sports. The NFL Pro Bowl is kind of a joke, specifically yeah. nowadays, right? And then you look at the MLB and the NHL, like they have their thing going, but it's not as big as the NBA All-Star Weekend has certainly been. Certainly not the whole weekend. Yes. The way, you know, Major League Baseball, the game is the best, the home run derby is awesome, but this is like a weekend. It's yeah. the whole thing. It doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite match up. I would say one of the biggest things was Adam Silver's disappointment at the end when he was announcing it. He, like, sighed and (laughs) was clearly disappointed with how the game went. Well, because he had promised it was going to be better and it was worse. And he recognizes that he blew it and the players didn't live up to his expectations. And I think he thought if he kind of put pressure on the players to play harder, they would. And they did not. All right. Enough of the All-Star Weekend. I don't like it. Nobody likes it. I don't actually put all that much hype into it being good. That way I'm never disappointed by it. Maybe that's the approach we all need to take. Don't expect much, and you won't get much. Let's get to the uh, mailbag. As always, you can find us at Ben's Hoops at Chandler Holt KSL. I put out a prompt every Tuesday around 11 o'clock asking for your questions. And Chandler, this week, we got a lot. Yes. Uh, first up, we got a couple from Jake the Lynx, or just one, sorry. It feels like team and organization has given up a bit this season. So as fans, we start looking forward to next season. Do you think the Jazz will be better this season or next season? Next season. I think the Jazz are going to be good next year. I think the Jazz recognize that Lowry Markkinen's getting close to his prime. They're going to extend him this offseason, renegotiate his deal. I fully expect that to happen. And Keontae's going to be a year better. I think you're going to have a a player in Walker Kessler who's a year better. And then they're going to still have some free agency money. They'll have a mid-level exception. They'll be able to do some stuff that they want to to improve the roster. I would be stunned if they go forward with this team as is next season. And you've got a lot of draft picks to trade. You've got a lot of 15 to $25 million salaries you can trade. And I would expect that they uh, approach that pretty aggressively, whether that's, you know, you can attach a $25 million salary or $15 million salary to your top 10 pick. All of a sudden, that's a pretty good deal for a team that says, hey, we want a new identity. We're hitting the rebuild. We would love a Colin Sexton and a top 10 pick. And we will give you our guy who's in his prime, but we're not ready to win yet player. Jazz say, great. Jazz get a guy who's in their prime to pair with Lowry Markkinen, gives Keontae George a little bit more time to develop. I could really see that type of move happening. Or if the Jazz love a guy in the draft, they say, well, we've got the 10th pick. We'll package the 10th pick, the 28th pick, and the 31st pick to move up to seven. And voila, we love Ron Holland or Modest Buzelis or whoever these guys are. I honestly haven't dug in that deep yet. I'm just saying, like, the the names that you, you might find yourself familiar with. They can easily do that as well and then still spend free agency money. So the Jazz will be better next year than they're going to be this year, barring Larry Markin getting hurt. Yeah, But you still have top 10 protections on your draft pick next year. If uh, Lowry were to get hurt, fine. You fall to the bottom of the draft and you hope you get Cooper Flag. And I think when you look at the group of players like Keontae, Lowry Markkinen, Walker Kessler, Taylor Hendricks, like just having another year playing together as well, specifically for those young guys, it's going to help a lot and you're going to be a little bit better. They will be better. They will be better next year than they are this year. I can almost guarantee it. Uh, Next up from Jazz Time Jones. If you could add a player that is not a current top 25 player to this team, who would it be? 
someone in the 100 to 25. I have an answer for this. I actually tweeted about it about two weeks ago. Okay. Um, I think it would be Macau Bridges. I don't think he's a top 25 player. He's probably in the 25 to 40 range. Yep. Um, on a struggling net team, he was already being thrown around in some trade talks this year. Um, he would address shortcomings on the wing position. He works well off the ball, can also shot create, and he fits the 3 and D mold, 37.5 career three-point percentage. He is probably the best role player in the NBA. I think one of the disappointing things right now for the Nets, and you know they just fired Jacques Vaughn, is that I think they traded Kevin Durant to the Suns thinking, man, Mikhail Bridges is having to play third banana already. If we let him come in and be the guy... He's going to be awesome, and he hasn't quite grabbed the bull by the horns. I'm not sure he has that mentality. So that would be, I guess, the issue of, yes, he's not a top 25 guy there. Talent-wise, versatility-wise, absolutely he's in that conversation, but you're right. There might be 25 guys I could name off the top of my head that are there, but he's certainly knocking on the door that's close. I'm trying to pull up some top 25 teams here or top 25 lists or top 100 lists in the NBA and think of, like, Who's not on the list or who would be in this conversation that you could go out and get that would be somewhat realistic? And it's again, it's easy to point to really good defensive role players like Herb Jones yeah. and some of these guys that really fit and make sense that would be what the Jazz need going forward. I would say it's probably a big wing is what you need. And again, it's why Mikhail Bridges just jumps out. Jalen Brown's probably a top 25 player. Like he's an all-star most years. He's been all NBA before, so I don't think he's in that conversation Jonathan Isaac's a guy I like a lot. Is not definitely not top twenty-five. Uh, he would come in and fit on this roster really well. He would just leave the pressure on everybody. He's just a maniac defensively. He's just never healthy. Yeah, it, it is. It's that three-four swing wing that can kind of play big, play a little bit smaller, defend all over the floor. And it just so happens that's what the Jazz hope Taylor Hendricks develops. Into. Yeah, <laughs> like that's why they're doing what they're doing with Taylor Hendricks, and it's why I think they would draft a similar type of player again this offseason. So, yeah, I hate to not have a great answer for you, but it's like, you know, is Jamal Murray not a top 25 player? Go get Jamal Murray. Yeah. Is Trey Murphy the third not a top 25 player? He's not. So, yeah, maybe a guy like that. Like, th- th- those are the types of players I would go out and look at. Uh, next up from Canon Law. Assuming we keep Laurie, is there a path to being a bottom three or four team next year if the front office decides to tank for real and go for Cooper Flag or another early pick? If Lowry gets hurt. Otherwise, okay. no. No, they— there are going to be teams that are full-out tanking next year. And look, like the Pistons aren't going to be—the Pistons might do what the Rockets did and go and spend a bunch of money on mid-level free agents, which is, by the way, why the Jazz were happy to move off of Kelly Olynyk and Simone Fontecchio, because those were the types of players that Detroit was going to overpay to get to come and play for them and win 38 games next year as opposed to 12. But I don't see it. I don't see how the Jazz with Keontae George, Lowry Markinen, Walker Kessler, and then whatever they have left of— Jordan Clarkson, John Collins, Colin Sexton only wins 20 games. Yeah. They're just going to be too good for that. So, no, I honestly, I'm sorry to burst the bubble of Jazz fans if if Cooper Flagg was the guest, but uh, I don't think they're going to be that bad next year. Um, Next up from Cam Young. Do you envision the Jazz strategically resting or shutting down players to lose and get back into the top 10 of the draft? Yes, I do. They kind of already are. You know, you're already playing Taylor Hendricks minutes that I don't want to say are unearned, but are probably not the best way you could use those 18 or 20 minutes if your sole focus was how to win games. In fact, you might be better with Luka Shamanich. You might be better with Omer Yurtsevin, who I mentioned, just eating more minutes, trying to go all out to win those games. But they want they want Taylor to develop because they want to be really good in 2026. And this is part of that process. And these last 25 games are not all that important as far as wins and losses go towards being much better 
in 2026, which is the goal. Uh, Jeremy Schaefer says he has some crazy ideas. What are your thoughts on moving back the three-point line and eliminating the corner three? And what are your thoughts on eliminating the defensive three-second rule? I would eliminate the defensive three-second rule. I'm trying to think of what potential consequences there could be for that other than, yeah, you're going to get rid of layups. Like Walker Kessler sitting in the paint for 30 minutes a game would be good for defenses. Now, maybe that would make, they would really gunk up the NBA and teams wouldn't score enough and we wouldn't like that. Actually, we'd be like, oh, we liked when they were scoring 138 points a night. But I think you need to start giving NBA defenses some advantages. You've already tried to do it with zone defenses and getting rid of illegal defense. I would get rid of three seconds in the key. I don't really know why it's a rule i get in the past when all you did was try and shoot layups and mid-range jump shots that having mark eaton stand in the key the whole time was a huge deterrent and you didn't want games ending with 60 points but like because the three-point shot exists give defenses something back if everyone's going to shoot threes then let defenses hang out in the key the whole time and then gamble that walker sitting in the paint the whole game is better than having him roaming out at the perimeter that's your gamble. Yeah. That's a risk. But let the Jazz try that if they want to try that. I think that's actually more interesting. I would definitely do that. I don't have a problem with corner threes. In all honesty, spacing is probably good for the NBA. Yeah. Uh, and you can't do both. If you get rid of corner threes and then get rid of the three seconds in the key, you're going to be in trouble. The games are going to get really ugly really quick. So you need to have pro spacing, but also uh, three seconds in the key. I'd also uh, incorporate the FIBA goaltending rule, which is once it touches the rim, you can block it. I think that's a great rule. Yeah. I think that's awesome. You can't block a shot that's going to go in, but if it hits the rim, it's fair game. I like that for everybody. Uh, Next up from James McKinney. Assuming the Jazz get to keep the OKC pick this year, what type of player makes sense for the Jazz to draft with this current roster construction? Have you heard of how Ainge views the top five players in this draft? I could see us trading up to get Topic or Williams. Uh, I haven't heard what Danny Ainge likes in this draft, though he has said, like, even going back two years now. Now, some of this has to do with there was some belief that the one-and-done rule was going to go away and that this was going to have basically two draft classes, which would be Cooper Flag in the 2025 class mixed into the 2024 class. So I'm not going to hold Danny Ainge to what he said about this a year and a half ago. But he said he thought the 2024 draft was really good, and he was the only person who had ever said that. <laughs> yeah, everyone else is like, no, this draft stinks. So I don't know who the Jazz like or who Danny Ainge like specifically, but I imagine he could find somebody – I think the Jazz would love another big wing that can score and maybe somebody who can actually like create their own shot because as good as Lowry is, he is still just not a great shot creator and you don't want your best shot creator to be your point guard in Keontae George. And right now it probably is if it's not you know Jordan Clarkson and Colin Sexton, two guys who we can say have questionable futures with the team long term. Mm-hmm. So you want a big guy who can create his own shot. And that's where the, you know, again, I have not watched these guys a whole lot. But, like, the Ron Hollins of the world potentially step up. And you're like, well, he was the number one recruit in the country. He kind of plays that two through four spot in the modern NBA. Six, eight, he has good size. Hasn't had a good G League year. But, again, my problem with the draft, and we'll get more into this, it's just like a lot of these guys just have to do this year. It's why the one-and-done rule is bad. You see guys who are just like, I hate this. I don't want to be here. I'm just here because they told me I have to be. My whole focus is being an NBA player. And once I get there, I'm going to really try. But I'm not going to try until then. And even Ron Hall broke his thumb, I think. Like, he's hurt. Like, he got hurt not playing in the NBA. I'm sure that was a major bummer for him. But those types of guys, big wings who can score, are going to be the the value. A group of questions here from Brock J. Uh, first up, what do you think is Hardy's and Ainge's reason for playing veterans who are not efficient and turn over the ball a lot in so many minutes? It's who's on the roster, first and foremost. That's who's there. And you could bench everybody and just play 
Bryce Sensabaugh, but you're going to lose your team. And the Jazz really do not want to lose the team. They want to keep some sense of culture and importance of earning minutes and veterans playing because veterans have earned their right to be in the NBA. They've done a lot. Jordan Clarkson has done a lot in his life to be this, to where he is in the NBA, as has John Collins, as has Colin Sexton. And they're not perfect efficiency players the way, you know, Lowry Markinen's efficiency is basically perfect every night. But they are just who's on the roster. And then you can't totally, you know, turn the wagon upside down and lose everything and just be like, well, that's better because Bryce Sensabaugh's playing. I think you risk a lot. That's how you end up being the Detroit Pistons and what the Charlotte Hornets have devolved into and some of these disaster franchises. The Jazz don't want to be that. So when you just go young because you don't like that veterans turn the ball over or whatever and you, you won't deal with their flaws, that can really that can really backfire. I think that can be an issue. Uh, next up, why is he hesitant to play Chris Dunn more minutes? I wonder if there is a maximum return on Chris Dunn that the Jazz are getting at the moment. And it's almost to the point where I was a little surprised they didn't trade him at the trade deadline, in all honesty. Now, maybe just because he is the leader in the locker room right now, and he is. Jazz don't have great leaders. Lowry Markin doesn't talk. Keontae George is a rookie. He's drowning and, and has done a good job, but doesn't have perspective on how to be an NBA player a long time. Lowry's trying to figure out how to be a star. Chris Dunn is very much like kind of the vocal leader of the team. He's loud. You can see when he's on the floor, the team plays the right way. He sets a good example for everybody. I think that's probably why they didn't trade him. But at a point, it's like, man, he he really can't shoot. And I know his shooting numbers say different, but like watch how teams guard him. The reason he shoots 40% is because nobody guards him. Yeah. So he gets wide open threes, and teams are like, fine, take two a game, knock down one of them. That's fine for us, but that's not as good as if you had a guy who was shooting eight threes a game and knocking down three of them at a lower percentage, but they can live with a guy who's not going to truly space the floor. And so you can only use Chris Dunn so much. And I love Chris Dunn. I, I had said all offseason that's who I would have started at point guard. Like, I have not backed off the Chris Dunn bandwagon at all. But I do think there are kind of diminishing returns at a certain number when you play him too much. And he's not a part of the he's – not a, he's not the guy going forward. Keontae George is the guy. And so how, how many minutes are you going to play Chris Dunn when you have Colin Sexton or you have – Jordan Clarkson, and then Keontae, who's getting 28 a night. Uh, last question here from Alex. What did the team, staff, and reporters get up to over the break? Uh, I don't know where all the players went. I know Lowry went to the All-Star Weekend, which good for him. I would have bounced. Keontae <laughs> George sounds like he bounced on Saturday. You have to do some media stuff after you compete on Friday. I didn't see him Sunday, but maybe he was there, but I didn't see him Sunday. I, I think a lot of the guys just got away. We will have to talk to them and figure out. I didn't see Will Hardy. Like when, when in Chicago, when... Uh, Rudy Gobert had made it, and Donovan Mitchell had made it. Like, Quinn Snyder went and supported his guys. And I think that was a good sign. And then I think, what, the next year, they did the weird COVID year, and the year after that, Quinn was coaching. But, like, I, I don't think Will Hardy went to Indiana. I bet he was just like, I need to see my children. Yeah. I need to see these people. I'm sure Jordan Clarkson was nowhere to be seen. He's got a daughter, too, that he probably wanted to hang out with. So I don't know exactly what they did. I worked, like, you know, you did, too. We were working the yep. three-point shooting contest. We worked the Rising Stars Challenge. Turned into the game on Friday, or on Sunday, I should say, the All-Star game, excuse me. Monday kind of tuned out a little bit, which was nice, and uh, right back at it today. So I, there's not—the break is a little overrated in how long it is. True. And then it got really hard for the Jazz because they had to play Thursday. They weren't supposed to play Thursday. Of course, the tragedy with what happened with Golden State when they visited and that game got postponed. So the Jazz ended up with a really short break compared to a lot of teams. So that was unfortunate, but uh, nothing too exciting, unfortunately. 
Thank you guys for tuning into the Jazz Notes podcast. The Jazz are currently on a four-game skid, but have two very winnable games coming up. Make sure to follow us on all social media platforms at KSL Sports. You can find me at Chandler Holt KSL and Ben at Ben's Hoops. Yeah, make sure to subscribe to the Jazz Notes newsletter. comes out every Tuesday, including today. You can do that at kslsports.com. We appreciate all the questions. We'll be back with you again next week.